Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association and hosted by John Paul Young. Hello and welcome back to the Shed Wireless podcast for Shedders, made in Australia and distributed all over the world. What an episode we've got for you today. My special guest, Carl Kruselniski, who you might know better as Dr. Carl. Now, Carl is known for his amazing depth and breadth of knowledge when it comes to all things in science. Carl and I had a chat about life, the planet, and of course, his shed. Our shedder in the spotlight is a centenarian shedder with a fascinating life story. A choir boy, a prisoner of war, an all-round top bloke. I caught up with Bill Hallett from Pottsville and District Men's Shed and we could have reminisced for hours. Butch and I have talked a lot about catching fish, but what's your favourite way to cook your catch? We're tantalising your taste buds today. Losing bladder or bowel control when you don't mean to can be an embarrassing topic but it's very real for more than a million Aussie blokes. We're not ones to shy away from taboo topics here on The Shed Wireless, so AMSA's Stuart Torrance invited adjunct professor Craig Allingham on for an Ask the Doc chat about incontinence. On the tools, we're working with resin. Gee, you can make some pretty incredible works of art with something you'd likely know better for boat building. And Rip, well, he's feeling his age. This winter cold gets the better of me sometimes too, Rip. Well, let's get into it. Carl, thank you very much for joining us on The Shed Wireless. It's a, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. You have had an incredibly interesting life. You emigrated here as a young young boy with your parents um, uh, basically fleeing Europe. Um, and you grew up in Wollongong, wonderful Wollongong. Yeah, I grew up, uh, I, I, we ended up first in a refugee camp and then in Sydney for a while and then down to Wollongong. And Wollongong was a great place to grow up and so I went through um, primary school and high school there and university the first time around. You have had your time as, as a labourer and a car mechanic. So can you, uh, what brought you into that sort of uh, part of the world? Was that just after you left school doing something? or? Well, I was working in the steelworks in Wollongong uh, as a physicist at the age of 19, because I'd already graduated. And um, then I left the, the steelworks and went to work in New Guinea and do research into hair and wool and end up um, getting a Land Rover and driving around the countryside. And very quickly I realised that um, I knew how the universe began, but I didn't know how to fix a handbrake on a car. <laughs> so I decided to improve my skills in that area and so then came back to Sydney, became a filmmaker um, and, a, and a taxi driver, did 400,000 kilometres and also uh, worked as a car mechanic um, and, and uh, that was really handy because I spent two decades test driving four-wheel drives in the Australian outback and being able to fix up things helped a lot. Why did you take these things on? Was that uh, basically a, a need for employment, or was it uh, a need to be educated? What was the what was the main driving force there? Um, boredom. Basically, I get bored easily. I'm kind of like a paddle pop stick in the gutter of life on a rainy day, and I get washed by the currents. And um, <laughs> I was sick of the steelworks. I saw this job in New Guinea, and I thought I may as well get away from that. Um, and then just kept on. All these opportunities just started 
happening at me. So um, I ended up uh, working for Fred Hollows um, for a couple of years, and I designed and built a machine for him as part of my master's degree in biomedical engineering, designed and built a machine for him to pick up electrical signals off the human retina and then use those electrical signals to diagnose certain types of eye disease. Yeah, no, it just seems, uh, you know, amazing to me that that you can have all these skills in in that area, uh, being a physicist and everything else, and yet finish up driving a taxi. Uh, um, I was very happy driving a taxi. It was really good. I had a lot of fun. Helped me get over my shyness. I learned a lot. (laughs) And I know the geography of Sydney really well. I know something about people. (laughs) Some people. I know, for example, that um, about 1% of the population are psychopathic and they can fool you at least the first couple of times. Are they easily identifiable, psychopathics? Usually not. It's only after a while when you think, why did they do that to me? Um, And then you realise nothing personal. They were just psychopathic people Um, and they tell lies. Um, About 1% of the population have psychopathic tendencies and where they end up depends on a two-by-two grid of whether they're smart or not smart and whether they're mm-hmm. violent or not violent. Wow. So if they're violent and smart, they'll end up in the military or the cops. If they're violent and not smart, they'll end up in petty crime and usually in jail because they're not that hard to pick up. Um, and if they're smart and not violent, they'll end up running companies, organisations, being politicians, because it gives them an advantage having absolutely no morals. That is a problem that we have. <laughs> Well, um, it, it does because in my case, in, in most the vast majority of people, you, you would feel something in, in you about doing something bad to somebody, but the psychopathic people, no, no worries at all. No guilt, no worries at all. And you think that's uh, – is that just something that um, the human race just has to put up with? Uh, do you think that um, – people who have a social conscience just have to put up with those other people or are those other people just having to put up with us that have a social conscience? Well, we can work around it so you can see different behaviour in different countries. So in Australia and especially America, which has more people in jail on a percentage basis than any other country on earth, Mm. um, the prison system there is basically to convict people as quickly and as easily as possible and then to um, lock them up. Whereas in Norway, the system is to try to rehabilitate them. So they don't do, the Scandinavian countries, to try to rehabilitate people so they don't do that sort of behaviour again. So that's one side of it. And the other side is how your society treats you. So if you live in a country where you're from a broken family and the state won't help you, you'll end up fending on your own. But in the Scandinavian countries where I was born, um, they'll help you. Uh, and so everything's covered, medical costs. There's none of this sort of, oh, my teeth are bad, but I haven't got any money to do it. It's just covered by the taxes. You're very much involved with uh, the youth, the younger the younger generation, Carl, um, especially with, uh, with Triple J. What what are the sort of things that they are more concerned about in today's world? Um, for a while, uh, they didn't care about much at all, and they, there were certainly no more demonstrations in the street. So I've been in street demonstrations against nuclear weapons. 
and for Indigenous people to be counted for the vote and for Nelson Mandela to be released out of jail and for climate change and against the Vietnam War. And for a long time, they just stopped going to demonstrations, but now they've started the game. And I've seen a very interesting change I cannot understand, I can't explain. When I give my public lectures about 10 years ago, maybe 5% of the questions came from people under the age of 10. Now it's about 90%. Wow. And they're asking really clear, incisive and articulate questions. So, for example, um, with regard to the younger generation and climate change, we're heading in the right direction, but the massive inertia by the $1 billion a year of lies put out by big fossil fuel is hampering them enormously. It sounds like we've got a, an interesting time ahead of us, especially when some of those under 10-year-olds hit voting age. Well, we 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 can fix it. Um, we can stop and reverse uh, global warming and rising carbon dioxide levels, um, and bring conditions back to what they were in the tenth in the twentieth century. And we can do it with today's technology, but we're kind of running out of time with regard to reversible or irreversible. At the moment, everything we've done is reversible, and what we can do is if we start now. We can bring things back so that we don't have one-fifth of all the forests in Australia burn. We don't have these massive tropical storms coming down the coast, the atmospheric rivers. We can stop and reverse that. One thing that is irreversible is something like the Thwaites Glacier, T-H-W-A-I-T-S Glacier in Antarctica. By itself, it's about the size of the United Kingdom. But if it pops loose, that's not the main problem. The main problem is that behind it, is thousands of cubic kilometres of ice. And we're looking at raising the ocean level by two-thirds of a metre in 10 years, you know, something like that. And that's not irreversible. It's, it's reversible in 500 years, but not in the lifetime of anybody today. And so wow. we need to move fairly fast with the sort of vigour that the Americans did after uh, Pearl Harbour. So on the 7th of December 1941, Pearl Harbour got bombed. Before that, the Americans had made 3,000 planes in the previous half century. In the next four years, they made 300,000. That's the sort of vigour we need to go at, climate change. And if we go at it, we can bring carbon dioxide emissions down to 10% of what they are today in 10 years and bring them down to a few percent 10 years after that. And we can also you know, start reversing it. But we need to go at it seriously now. We are getting close to irreversible changes. Nothing's irreversible so far. On to something a little lighter. Do you have a shed? Um, I have a, a combination thing. So we did a few renos. So mm. when we did the renos, we put double glazing in everywhere. Yeah, so we did insulation under the floor, in the walls, in the ceiling, and we put in double glazing. And our heating bill went down from $600 a year to less than 200 I I went uh, crazy with the solar. So... Uh... <laughs> And you store it on the battery? No, just solar panels. So I've probably got 50 or 60 solar panels all over my roofs. Ah, excellent. Yeah, in fact, in Australia, uh, the main cause of uh, the uh, electricity sector, putting out fewer emissions, 25% emissions lower over the last 15 years, has been renewables. People like you, good on you. What do you like to do in your shed? Okay, so the shed doesn't have double glazing. So one part of it is the combination laundry and shower. 
Uh-huh. And one part of it is storage for bicycles and other things, and the other part is the actual shed. Now, uh-huh. I've got four benches thrown out by the University of Sydney. One of them ha- is a century old and has got a century old vice on it. And then in the shed, so um, normally uh, the benches are kept clean, they're empty. And then I've got a whole bunch of tools. So I've got a little um, drill press and a nine-inch, sorry for the old money, uh, grinding wheel and wire brush and a um, belt saw for timber and steel and and, uh, plastic and then virtually every hand tool known to Western society. And, in fact, this now I was just making up a – stainless steel bracket and i ran into the problem with stainless steel at work hardens you know about that uh you, well i I, uh, I did an apprenticeship as a as a sheet metal worker oh so, really uh, yeah I, uh, we're talking high tensile stainless steel there really so you yeah. would know that stainless steel work hardens for those people who don't know hardening you hard you measure the hardness of yep. something by what's called the brunel test so you have a weight with a ball on it, a very hard steel ball, and then you drop it from a certain height onto the surface. And if it makes a little dent, well, the surface is very hard. And if it makes a big dent, the surface is very soft. And stainless steel does a thing called work hardening where you see the circus strongman, you know, big guy with some sort of leopard print thing, bending, just can barely bend the stainless steel bar and then offers a 100 bucks to anybody in the audience who can straighten it. And the trick is that not even the strong man can straighten it because you need more because it work hardens you need more force to straighten it than you bent it and the only way you can straighten it is to hit it with a blowtorch and and soft uh, heat it up and then you can bend it straight again so the trouble with stainless steel is that when you're drilling through it each time the drill turns it has to cut and if it starts slipping on the surface it's rubbing the work hardens, and then all you do is just you heat it up and you make the steel harder. And, you, and so I was making up a bracket out of stainless steel for the uh, light in the backyard because the old one had rusted. And yep. blow me down, um, through, I had to go through three drills because they were, they'd all been blunted in the past. I finally found one that was, pr- that was big enough and um, still had sharpness, and now I've got to go and sharpen them all again. But I'm not very good at sharpening drills. Are you, are you any good at sharpening drills? Um, I'm not. I'm not really good at it. But there was a there was a tradesman uh, when I was doing my apprenticeship who uh, took an incredibly brutal way of uh, of sharpening the the drills, and it was basically like a forty five degree smash into the grinder on both faces, and really? uh, turned the, turned the drill into what looked like a chisel. By wow. the time he finished with it, uh, but his drills used to last longer than anybody else's. Wow! I, look, I, I really need somebody to teach me how to sharpen a drill. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you're not Robinson Crusoe there. And thanks yeah. for explaining the, uh, the the reason why stainless steel is so hard to uh, to drill because it was it was a constant problem in the in the factory. We made the Indian Pacific, and uh, you made the Indian Pacific. Well, yeah, I single-handedly, Carl. I, I made the Indian Pacific, yeah. Because we Australia used to make stuff in the old days. Yes, that's true. That's true. And it's, it's a shame it's gone. Now, Carl, is there anything in your life that uh, you still have on the horizon that you want to achieve? 
uh, I'd like to do some space travel. I've never flown in a private jet. Um, basically, uh, and I'd like to see climate change reversed. For me, that would be the big one. Um, see some serious effort because it's costing us so much money. So I'll just give you two numbers here, eight and two. Eight is 8% of the world's GDP of $85 trillion, and that's $5.9 trillion, which is more than the GDP of Australia, which is only one and a half. $5.9 trillion is given as a free present, a subsidy to the fossil fuel companies each year. Isn't that an astonishingly large? That's more than the world military budget. And then secondly, 2% of the world GDP is all we need to reverse global warming. And the other 6%, we can spend that on health, education, welfare, teddy bears, picnics, falling cat videos, good stuff. Thank you very much for joining us on The Shed Wireless, Carl. It's been uh, an absolute education and you've reaffirmed uh, some of the things I've been thinking about. And uh, I'm glad to know that you do have a shed and you spend a bit of time in there. And uh, Oh, yeah, mate. I love, I, I love going in there. And so on my daughter's old car, before we got rid of it, because it was, didn't have the new technology, one of the door locks had come loose and I pulled out a tool that I bought about 40 years ago, which was an impact driver with a big Allen a screwdriver head, a big one though, and it's an impact driver. So you, you put it in there, then you hit the base with a hammer and it turns it either clockwise or anti-clockwise. And the last time I used it was about 40 years ago and it worked perfectly. I love that about having a place for all your tools. I've got a big Sid Chrome 13 bench, um, sorry, 13 drawer, 900 millimeter wide uh, tool cabinet. Um, and um, it was barely liftable before I started loading with tools. Now there's no way you can lift it. It's got to weigh <laughs> half a ton. Well, I hope you don't ever have to lift it. Thanks once again, Carl. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you very much. Shedder in the spotlight. Let's meet and learn about the life of one of our shedders. Our shedder in the spotlight is a centenarian shedder with a fascinating life story. A choir boy, a prisoner of war, an all-round top bloke. I caught up with Bill Hallett from Pottsville and District Men's Shed and we could have reminisced for hours. Well, Bill, what an amazing story you have. Uh, you're 100 years old and uh, it's been one amazing life. I'd, I'd like to take you back, if you don't mind, uh, back to Overwallop. Were you <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so tell me a little bit about Overwallop. Well, it was a very small village. It had a, one shop and one pub. Uh -huh. and, uh, um, <clears throat> and how I remember it on there, my father used to go to the, the pub every night in the summertime. I'd, in those days, he, kids could go, and I'd sit in the in the bar and uh, and watch him playing playing dominoes and darts and things like this and and as silly as it may seem uh, I used to go round and uh, my first taste of beer and because I drained a few glasses it was around <laughs> and and there because we didn't live very far from the 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 uh, hotel or pub as it was called in those days 
yes. So uh, I, I'd estimate that there was probably about 200 people that lived there. It had, a, as I said, one shop, but a, a big church. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and my memories of that was uh, being a choir boy and uh, oh. being told to go to there. So uh, I used to have to go to uh, morning services, afternoon services for the kids, and then night services because uh, at that time uh, they used to say I had a, a fairly good voice. <laughs> but it was very boring to me when I was going doing that when all the other kids were out sort of doing their own thing so uh, so that then to end that I I uh, I done a a quickie and I just played up and I used to sing out of tune and uh, so that uh, uh, in in the end I got chucked out you're a bugger aren't you <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that, that was uh, that was good because oh Oh yeah, well, it having to go to choir practice during the week as well. It it sort of took quite a uh, a lot of my enjoyable time up. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, well, I managed to get out of that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, going to school there was a little little uh, like. Premium, uh, sort of a varied start off uh, school in Overwallop, but when when you got to up to a few classes, you had to go to Netherwallop. The school was there, and uh, and and uh, I just just have to walk there, and that would what would have been at least a couple of miles, and uh, so then uh, then that was it until I could save enough money to get a a push bike and and uh, go down there. So that was my ex school experience in another wallop. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I was always in trouble there with that school uh, <laughs> because they, they was up on the hill and uh, you weren't allowed to ride your bike down the hill. But uh, I was in it one day and I had someone on the bar going down there, and I hit this uh, overweight little kid, knocked him over, and uh, and then I got into trouble the next day with that. So, yeah, so I, I can remember a few things about that time. <laughs> <laughs> you sure can. Oh, that's fabulous. That's a fabulous story. So, so you overwallop, and then. And there was ne nether wallop and over wallop. Was there any more wallops? And no, there was three: over over wallop, middle wallop, and nether wallop. And and uh, yeah, well then, then my parents then decided to move to Andover, uh, uh, but it was uh, a bit too late for me to go to uh, school there to. Mm. So um, sounded uh, like you needed a wallop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so then when we moved, when the whole thing moved to Andover, uh, my father he worked at Tidworth Barracks. He he was a carpenter, and uh, then later on, uh, I, 
and when I got to Andover, I went into a butcher shop making sausages and delivery. And, and uh, from there, I went to the, the cinema and was uh, uh, sort of uh, doing, doing things on the, on the sort of different machines. And then I was following whichever paid mo- most money. And then I ended up at the flour mill. In the yep. in the sort of a carrying <laughs> carrying things and delivery, so then then uh, I got a job at Tidworth Barracks uh, with my father, and uh, so that was uh, how things had settled down in my younger days. Yeah, and and you uh, you you joined the army first of all. Uh, no, no, I didn't join the army, but. Uh, uh, because I was in this Tedworth barracks and I was working through there, and I had a fair bit of knowledge about building and that sort of thing, and so I I got with the big boss there, and he used to send me out to to check on jobs that need was needed. But to cut the story short, uh, he applied and got me as a reserved occupation, and uh, anyway. That was all right for a while, but then my mates and all that had joined up in different things, and I got a bit easy, and I thought, well, Jesus, yeah, I'd like to go in there and probably uh, fly a plane. And uh, So anyway, unbeknownst to him and my job, all my parents, I, I joined the Air Force. And, oh. uh, and uh, much to, I got into real trouble at my job, I can tell you. He said, I've spent bloody hours to get you a reserve thing, and then you do the dirty on me. And so that that was the end of the, that issue, and then I went into the, into the Air Force. And, uh, and so how old, how old were you uh, when you joined the Air Force, Bill? Eighteen. Eighteen. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. I, we have a little bit in common. My dad was in the RAF as well. How was he? <laughs> yes, uh, uh, but uh, he was uh, he was out of Glasgow and uh, he he um, he was an, uh, an airframe fitter, but he was ground crew, uh, I think, in, in Reykjavik and, uh, and in the Middle East. Oh, was he? Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's... But, that... That, but your, your story... Um, of uh, being in the 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 B seventeen flying fortresses uh, and and on those secret missions, it, it's it's just an amazing amazing story and 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 the the tale of your survival. Uh, you must have had the most incredible swimming lesson of anybody in. On the- <laughs> yes, well, uh, I couldn't swim at all, really, at the time when that is, but uh, uh, sort of when I went, got to the thing, I first was traveling on, on Sterling's as a uh, flight engineer uh-huh. on into one four squadron, and, and then they changed over and, and went on these fortresses. And, and then the Americans came to the station and, and taught us all, all about the issues and that of it. And, uh, and that was, that's another story too, because no one, no males in, in England seemed to love the Americans because they had plenty of money and uh, plenty of uh, <laughs> 
plenty of things for the girlfriends, and uh, and so they uh, made it a bit hard for us to compete. And so, so uh, yeah, but that lasted for a while, and then then we got on to this this um, flowing with these things, and uh, and then we had this German speaking wireless operator, and. Uh, so we go out on these, and oh, it was brilliant to start with because in those days the fortress could get up to uh, thirty-five thousand, thirty-six thousand feet, and wow. and and that was amazing in those days. But so we used to go over and fly around the top and just view everything that was going on. No flight, no fighters, or nothing, and, yep. and then. Uh, so we thought it was wonderful, and and but then the powers to be decided that on this fateful day <laughs> that we'd go over to Holland and not fly any higher than six thousand feet. Mm. And uh, so because the because the fortress was built for daytime thing, they had the superchargers built in and the exhaust, and uh, and so. When you, the fortress flew over at night, you you could see four dots because the exhaust thing would be white hot, and that's, oh. so on that night we all felt this this was going to be it because uh, even the the German like Bofa guns it, at that height they could sort of pick us out, and and that's what happened. We we got uh, got hit in the wing and uh, got. Uh, on fire and uh, and and then uh, that was it. So uh, unfortunately, uh, with the thing, of course, I I got I got up to uh, second pilot then, and uh, it was my duty, as you would know, then to make sure who was getting out to parachute and who uh, who was left in uh, the mid upper gunner. I couldn't see, and I went down to see him, and uh, uh, and no, he he just was very scared, poor bugger, and uh, he he just wouldn't jump. So I returned back, talked to the pilot, and just said, I said, well, look, we're we're down to we're down to two thousand feet now, and and if we're going to get out, we got to jump. And uh, I said, so I'm going down and going to try and help him again to get out but if he if he doesn't go well I'm going so that was what happened and I couldn't I couldn't get him to jump at all and uh, mm. so I, I just went out then and of course that that was a uh, was around about 1500 feet then when I I went out and and uh, and unfortunately the wireless operator had left the training area out and I got caught up with that as I jumped and it, it just ripped me boot off and and uh, no sooner that happened uh, I sort of hit the water and uh, but the wind was blowing and that's <laughs> when you said I, I was the best swimmer because the the uh, harness I had an American harness and Instead of the English one where it had one button, it had two buttons, and I couldn't get the one off my legs. And that, okay. so the par parachute was uh, dragging me along, 
it hit quite quite a speed, and I, I I couldn't couldn't sort of do it. But fortunately, it went over a dike. We were in the flooded part of Holland, and the mm-hmm. parachute went over the dike, and and then then uh, I could handle and 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 dog paddle to the uh, to the dike, and so I could then get the harness off, and that's when I started to get up on the dike and uh, then I sh- I heard a noise and I shouted out and, uh, and one of the crew come back at me then and so we started to walk uh, along the dike and uh, saw, saw a house and went in there and uh, and explained what it was and of course we were it was in in May and it was still cold <laughs> Then and uh, uh, they took took the clothes off and dried it and something. But uh, yeah, we stayed there for a few days on there. But the next thing, the the um, Germans came and, uh, and and sort of took us. So we got prisoner of war, and uh, so that was a, that was a big experience i can tell you i'm sure it was Bill. I, you know the, the the fact that uh, you then spent about a year in a prisoner war camp in east germany yeah yeah, um, yeah. and so so that I'm, I'm assuming this must have been getting towards the end of the war when all of this happened well it was a we we're a prisoner of war for 12 months it was a, in may 44 when we got shot shot down and uh then, uh, yeah, so then we moved around and uh, in Germany with uh, in trains and something and ended up in Poland. It, uh, 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 a prisoner of war camp was called Loft 7 and, uh, uh, and that was a new camp. And uh, so uh, it was a new camp where escapes Things were just impossible because they learned the things that they they uh, got from where people had escaped from other camps, and uh, yeah. so uh, it was a pretty tight sort of a uh, issue. But yeah. but for all the things looking back, John, it was a uh, uh, I, I got talking, uh, trying to learn German a bit. And I got talk, and, and I got talking to a, uh, a couple of uh, German German guards, and uh, yeah. they couldn't understand at that time of the war why we were fighting the Germans and not the Russians. <laughs> and of course, at that time, it was uh, it was sort of sounded silly, but yeah. uh, uh, it, it was a few frightening things in the in the prisoner war camp because food was very short for the Germans as well as for us. And it's, to start with, we got Red Cross parcels, which were excellent and good. But, and then because of the transport problems, evidently, or whether we, we the Germans could get them through or whether they decided to have them themselves. So it was a, Came on uh, someone talking. It was afterwards. It could be, but they said, "Oh no, we can't. We can't keep all these prisoners of war. We'll just have to get rid of them." 
and that was a frightening thing, <laughs> not knowing what was going to happen. But it, it never, never did. And then the next thing, we're, we're out uh, saying we've got to leave the camp and start walking. And they were walking us away from the Russians. And, uh, uh, and so we were on that walk, which was uh, pretty awful, I can tell you. It, at that stage, um, it got down to 40 degrees, minus 40 degrees. And as, as you breathe the air over Balaclava, it just used to froze, so all around your mouth, and that was all ice. And uh, so that was a <laughs> that was things, but but it was one of the amazing things when I look back on there that that the because of the snow everywhere around and full moon, uh, you you could you could see for ages. You know, you could look around and uh, see where you were going, but of course the uh, it was pretty pretty hard going, and uh, it was uh, it wasn't very pleasant. I can tell you. No. but let's let's move away from that then, Bill. Let's let's get away from that freezing thing, and and uh, and and talk about the fact that you you uh, emigrated to Australia in 1951 with your wife Edna and your daughter Marilyn. Um, it sounds like. Uh, you you found heaven when you when you came to Australia. <laughs> yes, well, I, I because of the work that I had in England, uh, they were sort of some contact with De Havilland in in Sydney. Yes, and and uh, so I had this position there at uh, to go to at De Havilland's, and uh, when when we arrived from the boat and and we got. There in my wife had a sister living in in Blacktown at that time, and so we stayed there for a while. But she wanted to get up to see her family, which were living up in Wollombar, and uh, so I went out to De Havilland and spoke to them, and and uh, I explained to them that uh, I needed to get go up there, and. Uh, so they said, yeah, okay, well, that's right. So we moved up to Moolumbar, uh for a while. But, oh, gee, when we got there, the family and the friends that uh, they had took me fishing and shooting. And I thought, I thought, oh, gee, this is the life. I don't want to go back to Sydney. And, <laughs> and, and that's what I did. I... I uh, I sort of uh, stayed in Mullumbar, but uh, of course uh, <laughs> there weren't, weren't many people around that wanted uh, and a person that knew anything about aircraft engines. And so um, anyway, I, I went for a maintenance maintenance fitter, but there wasn't the thing there, so I I ended up doing a few other things around and uh, ended up selling vacuum cleaners and <laughs> and and uh, and, uh, and and then I I got into uh, working for the uh, banana growers federation and I was with them for 27 years wow. and, uh, and uh, so that was settled down we lived in Wollombar uh, for for that time and uh, Everyone seemed to be happy, but 
yeah, I experienced a few floods in Moolumbar. Yes. <laughs> and uh, then we moved down to a place called Pottsville, which was uh, when we moved, moved down here and uh, I bought an old sand mining house and, and uh, mainly because I was a mad fisherman and used to come down here and stay stay there. And uh, so it was a wonderful life then and uh, uh, I just enjoyed every minute since I came to Australia. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Now, you, uh, you, you're an active member of the men's shed up there and uh, is it the Pottsville men's shed? Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, that's that's wonderful. And and you um, you still you still muck around. You you uh, you do watch repairs. <laughs> yeah, the basic basic watch repairs. I used to get into them on there, but just with me, my my uh, eyesight and something, I I do the basics of of bands and batteries and things like that. But yeah, yeah with the men's shed, that was a. That was a great experience because uh, I was in the early days. They had a, a fight with the council about getting probably because uh, some guy out there he uh, he was said the koalas were all around there and uh, yeah. So I used to write letters to the council uh, about these sorts of things. That was just my my first induction into the men's shed, and then when they did get things to go. Then I started to go down there, but uh, um, I didn't become very active in doing anything. So, or, or uh, like with the carpentry or or machinery or something. And uh, but I just used to go down there because I enjoyed the company of the guys. And uh, uh, and then my wife got. To, she needed a carer, and and uh, so then I was limited to the time that I could stay there. But my my, my contact with the Pottsville Manchester has been terrific. It's been oh, really good. I mean, I, they, you must be a wonderful uh, asset, you know, to to all of the people up there in Pottsville with uh, with your your vast knowledge and, and the, you know, the amount of years that you've lived and the amount of experiences that you've had. And I've got to say one thing, Bill, if you, if you hadn't have uh, stopped, uh, you know, the, the choir practice by purposely singing out of tune to get thrown out, um, instead, of, instead of Bill Haley and the Comets, it could have been Bill Hallett and the Flying Fortresses. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, 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 cert I certainly would have liked to uh, become a singer like you, but uh, I, I don't think there was any possibility of that. But, uh, <laughs> but it was, um, anyway, it was uh, when you're young, you, you do these things and, and uh, yeah, and you look back on them now and, and think, uh, oh, I wonder why, but uh, anyway. <laughs> Oh, Bill, thank you so very, very much for being part of the Shed Wireless. It is an absolutely fascinating story, and I'm sure everybody will be so impressed by uh, by what you've done throughout your life. Bill Haddock, thank you so very, very much. And, and thank you, John, because it was been nice for me to have the rest of my life and saying, oh, yeah, I've been talking to John. What, what, what about that? You know, so, yeah, that's, so thank you. 
Uh, <laughs> the pleasure was all mine. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. We acknowledge the Bunjalung people, the traditional custodians of the land on which the members of the Pottsville and District Men's Shed meet, and we pay our respect to their elders past and present. On the road, on the Shed Wireless. Well, Butch, in uh, previous episodes, we've spoken a lot about catching fish, but we haven't really spoken a lot about, or at all, I should say, about eating fish. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, you know, I know a little bit about your last couple of uh, escapades, and I don't think you had too much to eat. When you were away, did you? Oh, you went up to Weeper. I'll just tell everybody that you you went up to Weeper and spent, what, a week there? Yeah, I spent uh, at least three full days fishing mm-hmm. and uh, we ate very well, John. We actually um, ate the best fish, I think, that you could actually eat and that's a finger mark brim. Oh, well, I better be quiet then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when you went with me last trip, we ate uh, finger mark brim. Yes, we and, did. And and the and the um, the trick to cooking fish, as far as I'm concerned, is not to overcook them. So mm-hmm. there's a reason why a fish and chip shop will always batter their fish or crumb their fish because when they deep fry them, what happens is that the fish actually steams in inside the batter. It's uh-huh. almost almost impossible to over overcook them that way. Right. So, yeah, but I think you, you're into the Asian style, aren't you, with the steaming? Well, yeah, I mean, this is kind of the same. It leads on to what I was going to say because I don't think enough people actually use that method of, of steaming fish. Um, it's it's a wonderful way to, uh, to cook your fish and it's, it's, uh, it's always very easy to tell when it's cooked because it just flakes apart. And um, and you can add your your, your Asian uh, sauces uh, or whatever a dipping sauce, um, um, a little bit of um, soy sauce, or a, another one called ponzu, which I've discovered. Um, yeah, and that's got a that's got a bit of a um, a bit of a citrus flavour to it, and and okay. that's the you get a little bit of ponzu when you order uh, steamed dim sims. Um, okay. You, you get that little bit of sauce in the in the container, which I always thought was uh, soy yeah, sauce, yeah. but it's not. Okay. It's ponzu. So have a look at that next time you're in a an Asian supermarket, and yeah. uh, it's it's wonderful stuff, and I'm sure it'd be great with some fish. Yeah, well, I think the steaming side of it, I think people are a little bit put off because I think they have to um, buy those uh, bamboo baskets, the Asian bamboo baskets. Not at you, all. Anything, I, anything will yeah. do. Yeah, you can do. You can use a metal basket. All you have to do is just put a uh, get a piece of um, baking paper and uh, put a lot of holes in it, and put that in the uh, lay that on top of the the metal steamer, and then put your fish in on top of that, and it won't stick. And uh, and it's it's a really nice way of doing it. Yeah, and you you say so you'd add a bit of. Um uh, uh, grated ginger and chili and garlic and green onions, that sort of thing. Yes, or you can you can do that separately and just pour it on after the the fish is steamed. Uh, you know, you can cook up a little bit of chili, garlic, ginger, like you say, shallots, um, 
and just do a, a very mild cook up of that, you know, and add a bit of sesame oil and things like that, and uh, and then just pour that over the fish once it once it's steamed. Yeah, and would that uh, method apply to say um, crabs? Because we got some beautiful mud crabs up in Weeper when we were there, and and you know the guy we with he just boiled them up, which was fantastic. Yep. But um, I, li- I like the Asian style. Can you do that in the steamer? Yeah, I think you can, and uh, I think uh, a good way of um, of uh, cooking crab in that way is is to parboil it. Okay. Um, so the normal cooking time for a blue swimmer crab, uh, I'm pretty sure, is eleven minutes uh, in uh, in in the in the boil, uh, or a mud crab is usually about fifteen minutes in the boil. Uh, so what you can do if you want to do an Asian type thing with uh, with your crabs, you can you can par cook them. So you know, cook a, a blue swimmer for about five minutes and the muddy for about seven, and then take them out and then uh, cook them in a wok with all your sauces that you're going to uh, right. put in, and then just put the lid on, and uh, the, the 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 seafood will cook through. Once you've put all your uh, your aromatics in there, okay. um, and and I got to say, last Easter, I I I, I got a um, the inside of an old uh, clothes dryer, which has a wonderful drum inside it. Oh yeah, and uh, there's there's holes in the bottom of it, so all I had to do was drill holes in the side of it, and uh, and it comes up as a, a wonderful. Um, cooking appliance. I mean, you can use it for barbecues and things like that, but it it really does concentrate the heat. And um, I got a fairly good sized mud crab, um, and I uh, put it in an esky with a huge bag of ice yep. to to put it to sleep. Yep. Uh, and I did that overnight, and then the next day I got the the boiling water, but. I don't think that normal cooking methods get the boil hot enough. Yeah. So uh, because I had this uh, outdoor cooker thing that, I, that I'd made up, I put a lot of timber in there and really got it super, super hot. So hot, in fact, that when I put this large mud crab in there, the, it did not stop boiling. Okay. It, it just kept going bang, 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 and, uh, and then the 15 minutes was up. And then I took it out and put it straight back in that ice slurry that, yep. that I'd had before, and uh, and you know I tell you, yeah. it, it, it was it was the best one I think I've ever cooked in my life because of the intense heat and the intense cold. Yeah, well, the the, the professional crab cookers and, and prawn cook uh, prawn cookers will use a um, a gas gas jet like a yes. really high powered, just almost like an acetylene torch. And yes. they they whack it under, and they won't they won't even think of putting any any crab in there until it's rolling boil, and of course they put quite a bit of salt in, and uh-huh. the other thing um, when you, when you put it in the ice, what that does is separate the flesh from from the from the uh, bones from the, and that helps to extract the meat, so that's yeah. why you put in the in the in the ice, but the other thing yeah. about it, remember um, when you're talking about putting the Asian flavours into the crab, the thing was you've got to break all the, all the big claws up so that the uh, sauces get into 
into the big claws and into the body. So you break the break the body up maybe into four pieces and break the claws up and then put it into your wok with your various sources. And um, that, that, that's the best way I've ever, ever thought of it. Mm. Fantastic. Now, you also did a little journey up to Bellingen? Yes. Well, once it, yeah, I like to, I love my fishing in Sydney. Um, but what happens in Sydney is you, you, you're sort of stuck with the basic um, fish that live around here, which is you know, just the whiting broom, flathead, tailor, and all that. But once you go up a little bit further north, and Bellingen and, and the Kalang Rivers um, are up near, you know, up the mid-north coast. And you start to get warmer water and you start to get some more exotic species, which I love because you get up there, on any one day you might get uh, mangrove jack, you might get three different species of trevally, including giant trevally, which is so much fun, uh, as well as your jewfish, flathead, whiting and broom, um, but that's, that's the main reason I go up there is because you never know what you're going to get, um, especially when there was a bust-up. I had a big bust-up the other day when I was up there and I hooked something in about a metre of water and it totally took all the line off my reel and uh, we couldn't stop it. Uh, so we, don't, we still don't know what that was. It could have been well. <clears throat> anything from a tuna or, or, or a big GT or something. But the frustrating thing is, you know, John, if you hook something big, and you don't see what it was, it's very frustrating. I don't mind losing a fish, but I'd like to see what it was in the first place. Yes, but the memory <laughs> lives with you forever. I know. <laughs> it's a big one that got away. <laughs> exactly. Now, Butch, we will come back to you in a couple of episodes and, uh, okay. and chat more about all things, be it fishing, be it outdoors, but lots of different things coming, coming your way. Thanks very much, Butch. Thanks very much. Got a question? Ask the doc. Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. The issue for this episode is continence, or should we say incontinence, the inability to control facial or urinal movement or flow. If we're truthful, I'm sure we can all recall a little accident. And I'm not just talking about when we were children. A few too many beers, maybe. Holding on to a full bladder for a little too long laughing so hard that sometimes, you know, things let go. It happens to everybody, but we don't talk about it. So here we are to do just that, talk about it. I'm Stuart Torrance, the Men's Health Project Officer from the Australian Men's Shed Association, and we're joined today by physiotherapist and adjunct professor Craig Allingham from the Budrum Men's Shed in Queensland. Uh, welcome, Craig. How are we? Stuart. Thank you very much for the invitation to come and chat about one of my favourite topics. Uh, Craig, the stats tell us that it's an, uh, there's an estimated 30% of men who visit the doctor are affected by incontinence, yet more than two-thirds do not discuss the issue. Even I can do the math on this one. That's not good. We need to talk about these things. Craig, what can cause incontinence in men? Well, you're exactly right, that, that guys tend to put up with things and, and don't like to, to mention them, even to their doctors, which is bizarre because, you know, doctors are quite comfortable with these things. But it can be an embarrassing problem, you know, mm. losing, losing your, your urine when you don't mean to or, or your fecal contents, you know, you're basically making skid marks when you didn't mean to. Yeah. But um, it is common and it's more common with age and 
the other thing that's more common with getting older as a bloke is joining a shed. So it certainly affects uh, our uh, you know Australian and international membership because that's the that's the uh, the most common type. Although I will confess that we are all born incontinent too, Stuart. We start off completely incontinent, and then we learn to master it. And then, sadly, as we get a bit older and, and various things happen to us, uh, we may have trouble retaining that learned control that we had. And, and there are ways to relearn it, which is good. But getting back to your question, the different types of incontinence. Um, so there, there's, this is where it gets difficult with a general discussion like this. There are different types of incontinence and not all listeners will be experiencing the same now or in the future. But I'll give you some examples. There's, there's a, an incontinence called urge incontinence which is where you you feel like your bladder is a, about to expel out all the urine you've got there and there's very little time to get to a toilet. So it's, it's that high, high level of signaling into your brain from your bladder that says, I've got a full bladder, let's get going, and not having much time or thinking you've got much time to get there. Is that like irritable bowel? Um, well, it's- is that another one? Yeah, if, well, except this is we're talking about bladder. But for irritable bowel, you can certainly have um, uh, an urgent continence of the bowel where, you, again, same thing, it just feels full and it's about to empty and not much time to get there. Um, so, yes, that can be an incontinence issue as well. But irritable bowel has a, a lot of other symptoms that go along with that. Uh, the other type of, of urinary incontinence or bladder incontinence is stress incontinence where you get through your day pretty well but... If you lift something heavy or push something heavy or or unexpectedly have a sneeze or a cough, mm. then there's a little bit of a leakage that happens as well. That's when, when your bladder is coping at resting level but under load of, of your when your abdominal pressure goes up with a cough or a sneeze, for example, mm-hmm. it, it's not fully competent under that extra load and, and just a little bit of urine escapes. Um, out, out that so that's stress incontinence and and you can have elements of both in what's called a mixed incontinence where you have urge and you have stress incontinence and so now it's getting to be a real messer of your day trying to work out how far am I from the, the, the nearest toilet at any particular time yeah so is that is that the same as uh, somebody laughing uh, very hard and you know having a little accident I've heard that uh, plenty of times you know I've laughed so hard I've uh, let go I've wet myself exactly um it's exactly that is a, a symptom of the stress incontinence again because laughing involves a lot of intra-abdominal pressure as your diaphragm bounces up and down and it pushes down on all your all your organs and the bottom most organ is the uh, is the bladder and it says if it's got any any urine built up in it, it says hang on I can't hold on with this extra stress uh, and it just evacuates a little bit of it when you're not quite ready for it. Mm. Okay. Uh, are there any others? Um, like I, I have uh, heard from the guys in the in the sheds that have had prostate treatment. Uh, is that a, a, a something that um, uh, can cause incontinence? Is it the treatment or is it the prostate cancer that actually causes the issue? Well, both. Depends where we're at. Let's say be, let's say they're getting a, an enlarged prostate, and that would and and not not cancerous, or have a cancerous prostate, both of which will involve an increase in size of the prostate. And yeah. as the prostate gets bigger, it 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 squeezes the urethra, it squeezes that tube that carries the urine from the bladder out through the penis, so it creates an obstruction, mm-hmm. a narrowed area. And when you're emptying your bladder. The wider open the tube, the more efficient the whole procedure is. 
So if there's an obstruction, you may not fully get all your all your urine out and there'll be some retention in the bladder and that will fill up again more quickly and you get what's called an overflow incontinence. So that can happen um, pre without cancer and just with a, an enlarging prostate and that can, and a urologist can sort that out very quickly um, in the uh, in the non-cancerous version with a uh, an opening up of that that bladder tube that that urethra the but you mentioned prostate cancer and yes there is a very high rate of lost control of bladder following mm-hmm. surgical removal of the prostate and this can is is often just a temporary recovery stage or for some blokes it can take weeks or months or sometimes years for it to recover and for some guys they never recover and that's a function of things that the man can't control like where the prostate cancer is in the prostate how many of the muscles are affected by that and how much prostate and surrounding tissue the surgeon needs to remove to make that bloke cancer free yeah those things we can't control but for most men, there's enough muscle left that they can retrain those muscles and regain um, bladder control if they do the work. Okay. So it's like going to the gym and, um, you know, if all things being equal and if uh, not too much has been taken, then you should be able to get back into normal uh, productivity so to speak. Well, exactly, in, in, into a level of control that enables you to get back to the shed, to go to your social activities and and, and hopefully not even have to wear any form of pad or, or, or undergarment that absorbs the leakages as they happen. Not that there's anything wrong with, with using those. They, yeah. uh, the blokes, blokes who have to resort to that temporarily or, or longer term always have this really sort of reservation that everybody knows they're wearing it and uh, maybe it smells a bit and, and maybe this. No, they don't. They, they are a very scientifically designed uh, absorbing pad that, that neutralizes the pH, removes the odor, and keeps the, the moist layer away from your skin so you don't get any rashes. I mean, these are, these are quite, quite well-designed things. But there's still that mental thing of, oh, hang on, I'm wearing a nappy or I'm wearing a pad, and that undermines your sort of masculinity and, and self-esteem a little bit. Um, which is quite understandable, yeah. Yeah, I, I do recall my uh, father-in-law, uh, who's passed away, uh, unfortunately, but uh, he he had to uh, wear them, and um, once he got used to them, he, he, he was fine, but he had dementia, and uh, it was a struggle for him to remember what the feelings and emotions were that sort of led to going uh, to the bathroom, uh, so he struggled with that, and... Um, once, once he was uh, used to them, he actually uh, preferred it because it meant he could go out, he could do things, uh, and he could still participate in life. So, Craig, I haven't had prostate treatment, and I'm definitely, but I've definitely got a bit of an issue. Like, uh, you know, it, it might be a let's say after dribble. I've had a few drinks. I've had a big feed. Um, I go to the bathroom. Is it just that I'm not taking long enough, like I feel like I've finished, and then put things away, and there's that little after dribble, and it's annoying. What's what's going on? What's go well? Gravity, gravity is going on. That's what it is. 
Um, Is that this? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a gravity and a, and a function of, of the plumbing, which could have been better organised when God put everything together there. But when you are in a standing position, your mm. bladder is higher than your penis, so it should drain out completely. That makes sense. That's gravity working for you. Except there's a little S-bend halfway down uh, after the urethra goes through the prostate. It's going down, and there's a little up-curl as it, as it goes into the base of the penis, and then, and then out she flows. So what happens is when you're emptying your bladder, you squeeze the, the bladder squeezes. It's a muscle. squeezes out all the urine, and it pumps it out through the penis. However, there's a little bit of residual volume that just gets left in that S-bend curve uh, at the bottom that's not fully removed. And that's easily figured. You can you can get that last bit out that, that so you're not getting the after dribble uh, by either squeezing your bladder hard, in, you know, your pelvic floor muscles internally, just trying to squeeze that out. Or if that's not working for you, just bring your fingers of one hand in behind your your nutsack, in behind your scrotum there, push upwards, and then just just glide them forward along the skin to to move that last bit of fluid from the urethra out into the penis where gravity can take over and let that run out. So it's what we call milking the penis. It's just just that. It's just gliding your fingers along on the underside of the of not 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 the penis itself, but on the other side of the, the nutsack to uh, just get it out of that S bend to where gravity can assist the removal. And problem solved. You you won't have that wet patch when you put the toolkit away. Good stuff. <laughs> Well, there you go. Even though we followed building regulations in in the construction of the uh, thing, it does cause problems sometimes. Yes. Uh, Craig, if somebody has a problem um, with uh, incontinence, because we'd all like to be continent, let's let's, uh, face it, who should they see? Should it be a doctor, a urologist, a physio like yourself? You seem to know a lot. Um, where's, Where's the best place to start? Good question. Good question. I mean, your GP is your gatekeeper for all your medical stuff in Australia. So it's it's and and you know other countries that may be listening in. But the so that's probably something that you need to be brave enough to talk about uh, to your GP first and say, look, this is the symptoms, and and he or she will will make a decision whether it's uh, you get escalated up to see a specialist, which would be a urological specialist, um, or whether it's just a uh, an issue that can be sorted out with some better physical training and conditioning, in which case you may end up at a physiotherapy uh, clinic. And not all physiotherapists are interested or, or do this sort of urological work, but most of them will be able to refer you to a local practitioner who does does handle that sort of work. Um, the and and the, what's happened with this this recent pandemic that's gone through is is I'm seeing a lot of clients now on telehealth. So I'm I'm seeing patients in Ireland and, and Canada uh, from here in Australia who who make contact through my appointment book and and we can do quite a lot of work even without having to be in the same in the same country or in the same hemisphere even um, just by teaching them the exercises, sending them some videos, etc. And uh, and they can uh, really get a crack on to solve their own problem. So what are the sort of things that when you go to the doctor initially, what what should you say and what questions should you ask? Is there, you know, um, some pertinent points, you know, um, obviously you're going to tell them that you've, um, you've, you've got a little bit of incontinence. Hmm. But is that enough? Do you, do you need to go into great detail about when it happens and 
Yeah, there are certain things that the doctor wanted. Well, for example, is it different night and day? How many times are you getting out of bed at night to empty your bladder? And mm-hmm. and once a night is considered acceptable and within the normal range. Uh, once it gets to twice or more, then it's generally considered to be a, a bladder dysfunction and needs to be uh, at least talked about and possibly investigated. And it may be just a, a matter of you know some of the medication you're on for some other condition, like your heart or blood pressure, for example, might be just filling up your bladder quicker than uh, than it can evacuate. So a tweak of the medication, or or it could be some other condition like diabetes that you have, or or even an early sign of some neurological disorder like Parkinson's disease or, or multiple sclerosis that's affecting your bladder first. And it can be a real harbinger of, of, you know, if we can pick up these things early, you can go on to a much more effective management plan. And it might be your bladder that's the first early warning sign. So the guys shouldn't be shy about mentioning it to their doctor because not only for the bladder habit, but is it a sign of something else going in my body that we, we need to deal with along the way as well? Craig, as was uh, always uh, great advice, we should take it to the doc and start asking and seeing things and getting things sorted out. As always, diet and exercise and watching the food intake are just small but important steps to a better health and well-being. If you're concerned about your drips and runs like Craig's advice, go and see your doctor. Thanks, Professor Craig Allingham. Once again, thank you again, everyone, for listening to Ask the Doc from the Australian Men's Shed Association. Take care. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to malehealth.org.au. Everything you hear on the Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. Ask the Doc is brought to you by Australian Men's Shed Association partner CRC Industries Australia. Just like their products, CRC supports the high standards of maintenance and repair of your biggest mechanical asset, your body and mind. On the tools, on the Shed Wireless. Thanks JPY. Today we are on the tools and we are getting sticky with it. We are down at uh, Scott Technologies down at St Mary's in Sydney and uh, I am with uh, Mr Steve Torrance. Scott Technologies, can you tell us in a nutshell what Scott Technologies is and what you do here? So Scott Technology provides uh, adhesives, sealants, basically polyester resins for industry, for for marine activities, for for uh, government departments, uh, for a wide range of things. It, our products go into mines, it goes into roadways, uh, it goes into trains, uh, even hobbyists boating and, and uh, people who just want to do arts and crafts. So, so, so Stephen, you do that sealant that goes into every set of traffic lights that protects the uh, copper wire. Yeah, the, se- the sensors that tell when the car's over over the, the road, yeah. Right, can you put in a little sensor into that sensor so as I can get the lights to change when I need them? Seriously. Leave it with me, I'll see what I can do. But from what I've seen, you can basically design resins for certain, or products for certain kind of jobs, like... Exactly. People come to you with a problem, so we need we need yeah. something to do this, and you come up with the. So product we to custom do it. make a, a resin for the end user's application. So yeah, and and so basically that's how 
your you've come to see us about yeah. the pen making resin software yeah. which well, has developed out of a, a hobby well, i was yeah. going to say i've had a little bit of experience with this my son had a hsc project where he wanted to build a table and he came to me about a week before the project was due he said dad i need to put the resin in, in you know in the table there i want to incorporate in the table so I got online, I searched up this whatever, I found this product, cost me an absolute fortune, and it was an absolute and complete fail. And I don't know why, I don't, but I've looked, I've researched it since, and it was, yeah, but it didn't go too well. Lots was, of things against you. I, I bet you you were, you were using epoxy, weren't you? I have no idea what it was. <laughs> So there is a diff there is epoxy and there's polyester. I've been told. So what is That's the right. difference between epoxy and polyester? So generally, uh, epoxy you'd need to be very exact with your uh, addition rate of part A and part B. It's a two pack e epoxy, and generally you'd need a, a vacuum pot to suck all the air bubbles out. Right. And epoxies are generally more a lot more expensive than polyester resins. So okay. with polyester resins, there's a lot more variety of of how much catalyst you you can add to the the resin, and that'll give you a, a bigger working time or a shorter working time and bigger cure time. So the fact that I did this in my back shed, probably with most likely with epoxy, uh, it was winter, so probably minus three degrees, snowing outside. I, I do remember of the day. I think yeah, and. Uh, and I think we had a hairdryer, and yeah, it was a complete fail. So it wasn't all my fault. A good tradesman never e blames his tools, but in this case, I everything think, yeah, was against you. Everything was against me. There you go. So I'm not yeah. a complete failure, Stuart. There you go. There you go. So what about polyester? What is the why is the polyester? Well, uh, for for one, it's you don't need extra bits and pieces like vacuum pots on the on the side. The the air bubbles just come out naturally and the best way to do that as you're mixing it into in your little cup is to just give it a few taps on the table or if you use a silicon mold once you've poured it in give it a few taps and the air bubbles will naturally uh, come out of of the resin so it's a it's a it's a little more user-friendly user-friendly plus it you don't have to wait as long a time before you can start turning or, or sanding or, or working with it oh, okay. so you can cut down the the, the cure time yeah. so that you can get your hands onto it quicker but if you yeah. if you reduce the cure time is is that a problem like you know you know how impatient i am yeah and if, if it only takes <laughs> two mil to to do you know a four hour cure I'm the sort of person that will want to put 12 mil in, yeah. so I've got a 15-minute <laughs> cure. What what would happen if I... So the, the downside to that, if you're really impatient, is you would generate a lot more heat in the resin, and it could potentially crack. Right. So uh, whether you put uh, a lot of catalyst in or a, a small amount, the end product will be the same hardness, yeah. uh, given the amount of time you need to cure it. Right. So, okay. yeah. So patience is a virtue. Uh, patience is good, but I mean you can work with it smartly and and get the best best result. So, uh, I've been working with resins after four hours; it's popped out of the silicon mold, and and so okay. that's handled that quite well. You you, if you're mass producing pen blanks, then then you can uh, certainly make it 
a, a bit longer if you if you need to or you can shorten the time and and spit through it and just leave the the solid pen blanks on the side and it'll continue to cure on the side while you continue to work with your silicon so, mold so that that brings me to asking that one of the other reasons we're here today is because you are also a pen turning and pen making enthusiast so, yeah yeah right, so yeah. I, I never thought about it before when i first started making pens it was just all wood and timber that i found in my wood box or pallets that are dismantled and and just cut up into to pens and and then i slowly started after experimenting with all timbers and and odds bits and pieces around the place anything that was solid i'd give it a turn of turning it yeah. uh, i i thought well there are epoxy resins that make pens why not make a polyester version well, which will be a lot cheaper a lot easier to use and a quicker turnaround from from making it up to actually turning it up on your machine yeah. and, and so i i got that if if you use just plain clear casting resin it's very brittle and it will shatter as you as you turn it yeah but if you uh, i've added some flexible resin to the to the clear casting and it turns just nicely now it just has that uh, middle of the road between hardness and and softness and it turns quite nicely so what you've done Stephen, is you've basically taken a known product and then developed it for your own purposes which has now given you a product that you can actually distribute to the market <laughs> Very clever. How to, how to make right. your hobby pay? <laughs> <laughs> but you don't you don't at the moment, do you? you don't, it's not no, so, no, we we I think we might have sold some uh, resin to a shed up in Bundaberg. Yeah, right. And and so uh, I think Stuart might have dropped a name here and there, and and I got yeah. a call and I said, oh look, we're we're working on this, we're developing it, uh, I'll send you up a, a few wow. tins. And and, th and that's why this topic would resonate, see what I did there, Stuart? Oh, very clever. <laughs> With the men's sheds, because <laughs> so many of them are into the pen turning, I've seen so much incredible work, but usually they buy the solid uh, hardened resin and then they, they just turn that, but this way, they can make their own resin and incorporate it into the timber. Like I saw, I've seen some of the amazing pictures of some of the work you've done, Stephen. And it is like you've incorporated the timber with the resin and turned that. You've put flowers in there. You've done some yeah. amazing stuff. So you can really personalize the work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you've got a, a single pen silicon mold, it would take about 30 mil of, of resin to fill that mold with your little copper tube in the, in the middle. And uh, so when when you've got that you can the sky's the limit of what you put in that clear casting resin something that i really like to do is put in a a pearlescent powder in there and it just has that that contrast of colors and that that really pearlescent uh, look to it and it polishes up really really well so really you're only limited by your own imagination as to what you can do with it exactly. if, if if you're going instead of using a pen blank you're actually pouring your own resin 
you can put anything in there you like um, to, to make it pop. And, and you've done that. You've said you've, your yeah. wife did some with some flowers. and Yes, yes. So we've been to, uh, unfortunately, a few funerals. and But my wife thought it'd be a really nice idea if uh, she takes some of the flowers from the funeral arrangements yep. and dries them in the microwave. And she gave them to me and we mixed them up into clear casting resin and, and made a pen and gave the, the pen as a gift to the grieving family and wow. that was something that uh, wow. they Very really appreciate. Yeah. Wow, yeah. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. Not just funerals but weddings. Uh, my wife's done pendants and earrings and, and things for the bridal party. So the bride collects all the flowers and and then gives them a, a gift of as, as a reminder of the, the You wedding. could turn up an umbilical cord. What? You're oh well, idiot. I was just You're I was idiot. just going there, You're like from birth to sorry. death. We can cover so, all. Sorry, circumstances. listeners. Sorry, listeners. We can oh. cover all circumstances. Yeah. I knew it was a bad idea inviting him. Oh. Oh. It anyway. was a thought. Yeah, it was a bad, bad, an umbilical cord. Oh my god. Okay, so the, the men's sheds they can they can purchase this stuff. Where can they get that sort of stuff? Is it, so is it readily they, available, or is it? Like, well, if you go to the Scott Technology website, uh, you can actually leave a, a request for for more information about the pen casting this is just a side hobby of yeah. mine and yeah. i've found something that works and people might be interested in it but it's not a, a main line that we've we've got on the factory floor it, we've we've got gel coats and flow coats and different types of resin but not pen casting resin so yeah. you'd need to request it if you if you uh yeah, contact us through the website or give us a call. So it's not just pens, though, too, is it? Like, I've seen it incorporated into breadboards, the resins. Yeah, and yeah. You can knife, knife handles. Knife handles, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So it, it really looks effective in a, a burl or a, a hollowed-out bit, bit of timber or timber slab, which is... So I've never done it before. So, you can, like, I know you can turn the resin, but can you carve it? Can you... Uh, can you, you sand, just sand it, carve it? What do you, you know? You can. Uh, I've got a piece down there. I'll have to show you where yeah. you, you can uh, actually put a knife to it. Yeah, uh, well. So yeah, it's it's something that's very versatile and and uh, yeah, the sky's the limit. Whether uh, one of the things that looks really effective if you've got three quarters of your pen timber. And then you've got a rough edge or at the edge of a, a broken piece of timber and fill the rest in with a pearlescent, uh, a really bright fluorescent uh, pearlescent powder. Yeah. It can look really effective in, wow. in your pens. Wow. But you were, you were saying how earlier that um, polyester as, a, as opposed to epoxy is cheaper than epoxy. Yes. So... What what size pots do you actually sell it in? What what like do I have to buy a 20 25 liter drum? <laughs> we could supply a 25 <laughs> liter drum if you wanted to. Uh, okay, so that's a lot of trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. Like, well, tell me, what pot sizes can we buy? So uh, generally, for for pen making, we've got a 250 mil tin. How many pens? Like full pens, would you get out of a two hundred and fifty mil pen? Uh, tip. So if you made it all out of resin, you'd get about sixteen pens. Yeah, well. But if you if you use a, a quarter of your your pen for for resin, then you've just quadrupled your output. 
Yeah. So if, if you have a mixed medium, as in yep. timber and resin. Or umbilical you, you, cord and resin. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? yeah, yeah. you can extend the, you cannot be, what I'm getting at is you can extend <laughs> the usage. Cord. So how, how many, how big was that tin you was just saying? You uh, said 16. 250 mil, wasn't it? 250 mil was. 250 mil was $20. Wow. There you go. Beautiful. So, and you would get 16 pens out of that? Yes, if full, full full resin pens, full yes. resin pens, and then you can cut that and divide that's, that and make a, a lot more. Out. Do you have there to you pay go. for delivery? Uh, you do. We have found a, a carrier who would deliver to all over Australia because it is flammable, so it is it, very difficult to transport. It's considered a dangerous good, so uh, we because it's two hundred and fifty mils, it's a limited quantity. Mm -hmm. So we can deliver up to a litre of product to any one place. Right. And we'd have to get a quote from the carrier before we, yeah. we shipped it out. Well, we'll that's something people can inquire about on the, on the website. Certainly can. Yeah. Beautiful. We'll have to put some of your... You've got some amazing photos of some of the work you've done and some of the pens you've created. And your wife, too. She does them, too. Or? Oh, yes. She's, yeah. she's got a, a few silicon moulds. I think she's got a, uh, a mould shaped in the word love and so wow. she's put that with clear casting resin and and flowers and and it really looks wow. effective as well so it's just not pens it's you you, you you're dabbling uh, in everything you can make <laughs> a toilet make seat whatever you a like toilet a seat. Nice. Oh, there you go wow. you think my umbilical order idea is <laughs> toilet seat covers seriously no, well, well, Steve, thank you so much. This has really been an eye-opener for me. It's been great seeing your workshop today and, and some of the work you do. We'll have to put it on the shed online, some of those photos for people to have a look at. Thanks again, Steve. No worries. Good on you. G'day, you mob. This is Ernie Dingo, and you're on the Shed Wireless with my mate, John Paul Young, or JPY, or I don't know what other leathers we're going to call him. But don't forget, fellas, if you don't have a hammer, use a screwdriver. Yeah, there's something for you at the midship. of concentration. I think the older we get, the more I'm starting to revert back to my childhood. I seem to have more and more in common with my two-year-old grandson in relation to life milestones, but in reverse. I mean, obviously I have an increased vocabulary, which means I can still beat him at scrabble and stuff, but I see he's catching up with his chest moves. I'm in trouble when he learns what to do with that knight, other than stick it up his nose. But it's not just the cradle cap that makes us alike with me rapidly spreading bald spot. It looks somewhat like someone slapped a slice of Devon on the head. I mean, the older we get, the more we seem to rely on others or lose some of them skills we developed when we were little toddlers. What's with that? I mean, while the grandson's starting to run across the room, I'm starting to struggle to walk to the loo in the middle of the night without losing me balance. I used to jump fences and dodge sheep like a back roller for the blues back in the day, but now I feel like Neil Armstrong taking his first steps across the moon, just walking to the kitchen to put the kettle on of a morning. It's not just the balance that starts to go, but like how the kids get growing pains, 
we start getting growing old pains. I can feel just about every old injury catching up again for a second spell. From footy injuries to back aches from baling hay for 40 odd years. It takes a good half hour every morning just to get the parts warmed up. I swear, if I was made of metal, I'd squeak like an old door of a Datsun, I reckon. And all these years of feeding myself, I figured I might have just mastered it by now. But no, there's been numerous times I've walked away from the table to find a good percentage of my meal still on my face or down the front of my shirt, just about ready for a bib again. I now try and colour code my outfit with whatever's on the menu for the evening meal. Red for spaghetti, brown for sausages and gravy, and black for a barbecue. Yeah, white shirts on the table are a thing of the past, let alone putting them on myself. I used to pride myself in being a bit of a snappy dresser, always looking sharp with my shirt tucked and my tie when appropriate. But it's hard enough now to do up a button, let alone match it with the right hole, and putting on a pair of trousers has become a national sport. And speaking of finding the right hole... I don't like to brag, and it's probably no surprise to you lot, but old Riff here was a bit of a lady killer in his day, and I used to get complimented, well, I rated myself anyway, on my exploits and prowess in the boudoir, but now it takes me all night to do what I used to do all night. Or on the contrary, it's either a non-event or over before it begins. It's a matter of, this is going to be good, love, wasn't it? Yeah, the downstairs department is a whole other concern itself. I swear me bladder must store more than a two-hump camel, the amount of times I've got to go to the bathroom of a night. And the old fella and me, we just aren't on the same page anymore when it comes to starting and finishing. I figure I'm done and tucked in a matter of seconds. But he likes to drag it out for several minutes after we leave the bathroom. I'm just about ready for one of them man nappies, I reckon. So I don't know where all this is going, fellas, but I guess it's just a circle of life, as they say. But it ain't all bad. Growing older has plenty of his advantages, too. I mean, my wealth of information and life experience to share has become exponential as I've matured. But my missus doesn't seem to want to hear my verbose rhetoric of eclectic, etymological conversation. I can't understand that. The boys in the shed seem to hang on every word I say. Mind you, I did see Darren fiddling with his hearing aid the other day. <laughs> Must have just been turning them up. Yeah, growing old is just another thing we have to deal with. Like every other thing, hurdle and speed up, we've had to jump over the span of our lives. It happens to the best of us. I'm sure I'm not the only fella to fart and follow through, right? Anyway, fellas, I'm going to go change me shirt. The porridge this morning must have just jumped off the spoon. Okay, fellas, see you next time. Bye, fellas. Do you dabble with resin at the shed? Or maybe at home? I'd love to see some pictures of what you're doing. Or perhaps Butch and I had you drooling thinking about cooking your catch. What's your favourite fish or your crab recipe? Drop me an email to theshedwireless at menshed.net. And remember, share your favourite podcast with your shedding mates. Give them a hand to subscribe if you can, or send them to www.menshed.org forward slash theshedwireless. Until next time, folks, for the love of shedding, see you then. Whatever is your game, everyone's the same. Yeah, we can do it all at the men's shed. Short, fat, tall, skinny, hairy, ball. In the shed, it's welcome, one and all. Share the skills you know, we're all having a go. There's a helping hand in the men's shed.
together something. 